You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week seven. Today's teaching is on Exodus 12, 1 through 13, 16. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you again today. And as always, a joy to be gathered around God's word. As I began preparing for this morning, I thought this is like a joke that I have to talk about the Passover, the Exodus, the feast, and the consecration of the firstborn in 30 minutes. (laughs) If you know me, you know I can get a little long-winded if I'm passionate about something. But truthfully, whoever's been slotted to teach makes a similar comment like every week. This passage is so rich. How can we possibly do it justice in this time? but God has been faithful to guide and direct. These events and their theological significance are so close to my heart. I think I could teach on this for like three hours straight. What we're gonna do today is look at the main points together, okay? The things we absolutely have to take hold of to understand this passage rightly. But know that there is so much more here. So if your appetite is wet today, I would encourage you take the time. Dig in a little further, take a closer look. What's so neat about a setting like WBF is because you're in the word for yourself, it allows the spirit to teach you even more so than just what is said here on a Thursday morning. We may never plumb the depths of this passage on this side of eternity, but we're gonna dig in today. So we have reached the climax of the Exodus story. Any English nerds out there? couple. (laughs) In literature, the climax is uh, the turning point in the story. It's the highest point of tension or action. The climax is not the end of the story. It simply allows for the resolution to take place. So the Passover is the hinge of the story, but it also foreshadows the whole climax of the Bible, as we'll see here today. Throughout the last several chapters of Exodus, we have seen an amazing demonstration of God's power and glory through his judgments on Egypt. But yet, as we've also observed, these judgments are lined with mercy and long suffering, his character on display. Remember, there is a larger narrative playing out on this stage. So just as Moses and Aaron are representative of God and his kingdom, so Pharaoh stands in hardened opposition, representing the devil and his kingdom of darkness. This is important context to keep in mind as we progress through this final plague. The plagues have been increasing in severity until this point where we have human life on the line. And isn't it striking that Pharaoh just disregards the warning of his son's death? I mean, did he actually think it wasn't gonna happen? God had made good on his word every single time down to the smallest detail. Yet what a picture this is of the sinful heart, hardened stone that refuses to acknowledge or submit to the true sovereign. Pharaoh's sin is not only going to cost him the life of his own son, it's going to devastate the families of his kingdom 
there is going to be immense collateral damage for his sin. That night we see the most dramatic distinction yet between the people of God and the people of Egypt. God gives Moses instructions for the Israelites on how to be spared from this final plague. Did that register as you studied that the Israelites needed to be spared from death? In all the other plagues, it seems like God just kind of made an exception for them. And they were just over on the sidelines watching the chaos unfold. But this communicates a huge theological truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Israelites were sinners too. There was nothing about them that made them worthy of his mercy. It was only because God set his favor on an undeserving people and made provision for them. And that should drive us to grateful worship because if we're in Christ, we're recipients of that same glorious grace. In your homework, you organized all the details of this provision in a chart. So in summary, they were to choose an unblemished lamb that was a year old, set it aside until the 14th day of the month and then slaughter it at twilight. The meat was to be roasted and eaten along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs with nothing left over until the morning. They were to eat the meal dressed, ready to leave in their houses under the blood on their door frames. Chapter 12, verse 23 says, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Did you stop and think about what this would have been like? Several weeks ago, I taught this story in third grade Sunday school and we decided to recreate the scene a little bit. So I, we hung this uh, red plastic tablecloth over the door frame to symbolize the blood and made like a fort out of the tables. And we turned off all the lights and we like huddled them all down on the floor together and gave them matzah crackers from Giant, okay? <laughs> it was nothing fancy, but it was enough for them to feel the weight. Their eyes got really big as they listened. And honestly, I was surprised how much it helped me to enter into the story. I had never really thought about the fact that this would have been like a scary night. Can you imagine being an Israelite mother? Like the whole household's wake. They're supposed to be asleep. And the tension must have been so thick. I imagine some of them were just holding their firstborns, pleading on the mercy of God that somehow the blood on their door was going to be enough to spare this son. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. 
And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what the strike was like. What do you think they saw or heard? Something must have caused the Egyptians to wake up and to realize that their sons were dead. And then the night would have been filled with the sounds of shock and grief. I wonder if any of you had some hard questions that came to mind as you studied this. Again, don't be afraid to ask those hard questions. I'm gonna say them out loud just to clear the air. Was it fair of God to strike down all those people? How is this any different than Pharaoh going on a killing spree with the Israelite babies? The Passover is just one of many occurrences in the Old Testament. It kind of makes our stomach knot up a little bit when we think of the reality of the story. How can we possibly defend the actions of the Lord? These questions are certainly logical, but I think we get hung up on them because the framework in which we're asking them is too small. Almost without fail, we ask these questions from our imbalanced human perspective, wherein we have too, view, too high a view of humanity and too low a view of God's holiness. If we could see things from God's perspective, we would be utterly humbled that God would extend mercy to anyone. The wages of sin is death. God's righteous justice demands consequence for sin. That's why the covering for the Israelites is such grace. And that's why the gospel is such good news. It's not that God got all the justice out of his system in the Old Testament. And then we get to the New Testament and he's like, okay, I'm free to operate in love now. It's rather that his justice has been satisfied by the death of his beloved son, who is our substitute. Do you understand? We now can relate to God as loving father, but it's because of Christ. God's holiness and his justice are still perfectly intact. But those of us who are in Christ have come in under that bloody door frame and we no longer have to fear the wrath of God. The final plague was the straw that broke the camel's back. In verse 31, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said, take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Even though Pharaoh had finally conceded to Moses' demands, don't mistake this for true repentance. Just like Julie said, this man does not hate his sin. This man hates the effects of his sin. He hasn't forfeited the war. We're gonna see that shortly. 
He's only forfeited this battle. Additionally, his request for favor from God shows that he wants that favor. He recognizes the higher authority of Yahweh, but he doesn't want to submit. We get the same impression from the Egyptians as they hand over all their wealth, the plunder from the battle, so to speak, and they send the Israelites out with urgency. Remember, worshiping pagan gods was a life of toil. They lived in fear of their gods. And I don't mean the holy fear with which we approach God. I'm talking fear like walking on eggshells. They offered sacrifices and performed all kinds of grotesque rituals just to try to appease these self-absorbed terroristic deities. We know that the Lord stirred the Egyptians to hand over their riches, but it also makes logical sense. It's like their way of surrendering to the terrifying God of the Israelites. And they're like, please leave our land. The text is so matter of fact about their mass exodus up and out of slavery. But again, think of what this would have been like. Like what a relief of or what a mix of relief and also holy fear as these women packed up their children to head for the wilderness with no other provisions. As they passed over the threshold of their homes, I wonder if they reached out and just touched the blood on the doorframe. Verse 37 tells us there were approximately 600,000 men plus women and children. It's not a far stretch of the imagination to say that this could have been a group of two million people leaving Exodus that night. Now there's some discrepancy about the translation here, but even if it was less than two million, it was still a huge group. The phrase we see in verse 38, a mixed multitude, communicates that some Egyptians and or foreigners had joined their company. And notice the military language in verse 41. All the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt as their commander in chief kept vigil over them, ensuring their escape to safety. It's ironic, as Pharaoh was initially concerned about the possibility of a military coup. Do you remember that at the beginning? He didn't see this coming. The battle is the Lord's. God had made good on his word to Abraham from so many years before. He had delivered his people from bondage. 430 years of slavery. And yet the Lord is not slow to keep his promise as some understand slowness. And so on that night, a picture was set forth. The blood of an innocent substitute provided a covering from the wrath of God. The good news of the gospel is that God has provided what his justice demands. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood 
to be received by faith. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And it is for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Worthy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If I were to choose one word to encapsulate the rest of chapters 12 and 13, it would be remember. All of the additional instructions God gave through Moses, so the feast of the Passover, the feast of the unleavened bread, the consecration of the firstborn, were all habitual practices meant to remind them of what God had done. This is the beginning of liturgy, so to speak, which simply means rituals of worship. Liturgy can get a bad rap today because it can seem very formal or mechanical to us. And I get that, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What is God's heart? From the very inception of his people, he was instructing them to participate in rituals of worship. The human race is terribly forgetful. One commentator noted, the Christian life is a combination of amnesia and deja vu. I know I've forgotten this before. <laughs> Can you relate? <laughs> we need rhythms of remembrance that keep us aligned with truth. And because God created humans, he knew exactly what was needed to achieve this end. Repetitive practices that invoke physical, mental, and spiritual participation. We've since figured out that the most effective learning takes place when there's multiple senses involved. God already knew that. He knew what would be most formative for us. The purpose of the Passover feast was not just to have a party. There were specific foods that held significance in the Passover story. So I have a picture here for you of a modern day Seder plate. This is a part of Passover feast even today. Now there's some elements here that were not part of the original meal in Exodus, but each item has a connection to those events. So as they go around the plate and the foods are eaten, the story is retold. It's remembrance. I want you to see the beauty here. There is active participation in this ritual. They're not just passively watching something transpire, but they're preparing a feast with its smells and textures and tastes. And as they sit down together, they're eating and drinking symbols that remind them of what God has done. 
So as the bitter herbs make their eyes water, they remember the bitterness of slavery. The roasted lamb reminds them of the cost of their freedom. And the unleavened bread symbolizes their urgent exodus that night. When Messianic Jews or Christians sit down to this table, those bitter herbs don't just symbolize Egyptian slavery, but the bitter bondage of sin. The roasted lamb is no longer just about blood on the doorframe. It's about the lamb of God who takes away our sin. The unleavened bread has become the eternal and daily sustenance found in Christ, our bread of life. And here's the next layer. This is the meal that Jesus was enjoying with his disciples the night he was betrayed. Jesus took this liturgy and blew it open. He illuminated the messianic significance that had been there all along. It was dormant until the fullness of time had come. God had provided his people with the muscle memory for centuries in preparation for the lamb of God who would be slaughtered at twilight. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And here we find the liturgy that's most common to our experiences, the Lord's Supper. At LEFC, we come to this table every month, participating in the rhythm of remembrance as an act of worship. And as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. No matter what sin or what circumstance is pulling us away from truth throughout the week. When we quiet ourselves before that table, we remember what God has done. Immediately following the Passover then, they went into this week-long celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were commanded to purge all the leaven from their homes and to abstain from eating anything with leaven in it. Again, what I want you to see today is that God was building muscle memory in his people so as to flood this liturgy with significance in Christ. In the New Testament, leaven usually symbolizes sin. Now, I love to make bread. Have you ever worked with yeast? It is a living organism, right? It grows and spreads it undergoes a fermentation process that gives off gases and that's what actually causes the dough to rise. Jesus taught his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was illustrating the fermentative nature of their false teaching, 
and hypocrisy. This analogy becomes even more striking in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In this passage, he's talking about the way that sin ferments the church. If the Passover represents salvation, the feast of unleavened bread represents sanctification. The purging out of sin from our lives and growing in holiness because of what he's done for us. When we allow the whole breadth of scripture to provide context, we can see the significance. The unleavened bread that was eaten on the night of the Exodus was because the people left in haste. There literally was not time for their dough to rise. But friends, the unleavened bread of the Passover table all those years, the unleavened bread of our communion table is meant to remind us of the bread of life. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Lastly, he instructs them to consecrate the firstborn from every womb, man and beast. Consecrate means to set apart, dedicate or devote to the service and worship of God. So why their firstborns? Well, the answer we have in the text is so that it would remind them of how God spared their sons in the final plague of Egypt. And instead of having to relinquish their consecrated sons, think Hannah and Samuel, they could redeem them or buy them back, which reminded them then of the cost. A lamb died instead of their sons that night, rhythms of remembrance. Additionally, I believe that God's heart behind this command is similar to that of tithing or the offering of the first fruits, even of the Sabbath as a tithe of our time in our schedules. They all carry this idea that everything that we are given to enjoy and to steward is from God. And so by offering the first and best to him in worship, we not only acknowledge this truth, but we display active trust that he's gonna provide for the future needs. 
God was worthy of the first and best of the Israelites, and he's still worthy of our first and best today. Did you see the script of questions and answers that were woven throughout this portion of the text? I went through, went back through and found that there was a question and an answer for each one of these things. The Passover, feast, the unleavened bread, and the consecration of the firstborn. And the context here is that the children are asking the questions and the parents are providing the answers. This gives us further insight into God's intention for these rituals. They're not just meant to be a solely personal experience, but rather to be celebrated and to teach corporately to the next generation. As we see here, this begins in the home. Parents have the primary responsibility to train their children in the ways of the Lord. They'd be participating in these rhythms of remembrance together and verbally testifying to who God is and what he's done. But I don't believe the model of parents and children in the home was ever meant to be the end all. So as with so many other gifts that the Lord gives us, the nuclear family speaks to a greater reality. In this case, the family of God. So if you don't have children, or if you are geographically or relationally distant from your children, this still applies to you. In the family of God, we should always be looking to impart the truth of God to the next generation. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter, utter hidden sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commands. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. The Passover was never meant to just be a mile marker in the rearview mirror. It was to be a monument that they would never forget. Anytime we view our salvation or the gospel as a thing of the past, we will miss out on its transforming power for today. We never outgrow our need to be near the cross of Christ. That doesn't mean that we stay in spiritual infancy, but that means that our growth is motivated by love and gratitude from rehearsing what God has done for us. We have been saved from sin and death and saved for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that you have chosen to look on us with mercy. There is nothing in ourselves that is worthy 
of the life of your son. But in your great love, you have extended yourself to us. You went first in consecrating your firstborn so that we too may become your children. Father, I just pray for each woman here that the sweetness and the richness of what we read in Exodus would just bring connection to the gospel truth for today. And wherever each one is at, I pray that you would again remind her of your tremendous love, that we were bought at a price and that you have called us to yourself to be holy that we may be with you someday. Thank you, Father. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. 